I'm sure that you'll all be happy to know Oklahoma's still playing on Broadway. Hey, Oklahoma, when the wind comes, sweeping down the plane. And a wave in wheat, he sure smells sweet. When the wind comes, right behind the rain. Well, Keith, are you sitting in your bayonet there? <laughs> What a beautiful morning, or evening, as the case may be for us. <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where the wind blows sweeping down the plains, and we also discuss our favorite albums song by song. All right, who's here? I'm Rich Bennell. I'm Ben Marlin. And I'm John McFerrin. All right, we're going to turn it over to this week's host, Ben, who I hear is going to take us to the theater. <laughs> so what album do you have for us, Ben, and why did you pick it? I have the musical Oklahoma by Rodgers and Hammerstein which is originally from 1943, the original Broadway show. But the recording I want us to listen to today is from 1964. It is a a studio recording not associated with any actual Broadway production. So Ben, what is your personal history with Rodgers and Hammerstein and Oklahoma? You love musicals, right? Just lifelong fan of musicals, musicals all the way down. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's, that's everything I was going to say. So. All right. Well, John, what's (laughs) Ben, go on. Well, I'm coming at this episode from a weird place because Oklahoma is a Broadway soundtrack filled with show tunes And for the most part, I don't love Broadway and I don't love show tunes. Why, you ask? Don't rush me, bro. I'll get there. (laughs) So there are a few reasons. I'll start with the fact that Broadway shows are live shows. And for the most part, I've never much enjoyed live music. Music, I love. Listening to music, thinking about music, reading about music, talking about music. It means a lot to me. But unlike a lot of people, I've never cared much about going to concerts or even enjoyed the experience that much. That whole life-affirming experience of performers and audience losing themselves and finding communal transcendence through the glory of music, woof, not for me. I get uncomfortable. Even when I love the artist and the music, I invariably wonder when it's going to end. Although to be fair, that's how I basically approach life. This is cool. Is it over soon? I understand that this is a me problem. I'm not good at having fun. I'm not good at loosening up. I'm not bragging about this. I give the experience of being me like three, three and a half stars out of five. Moderately (laughs) recommended. It's mid. (laughs) So now transfer that live music experience to a rickety old Broadway theater with tiny, uncomfortable seats, two hours in a dark room when it's a beautiful day outside having to stand and applaud way too often, and hearing songs that just aren't the type of music I love. I don't like that much. I know that millions of people absolutely love the Broadway experience, and good for them. And the funny thing is, I've enjoyed every Broadway show that I've been dragged to. Phantom of the Opera, Chicago, Kinky Boots, Hair, Jersey Boys, especially Beautiful, the Carole King musical. Broadway musicals are big, professional, crowd-pleasing productions. They're machines, and it's hard not to be entertained, even if you're me. 
I just check my watch every minute of the show. I'm relieved when it's done and I dread going back to the next one. (laughs) And that's life in my brain. There's also the matter of show tunes. This is a genre of song that with some significant exceptions, I just don't like that much. And there are four reasons I can think of. For one, people don't and shouldn't just break out into song. Mm. It struck me as weird and unnatural when I was a kid, and it still does today. Singing is something you do on stage or on a TV competition or in a karaoke bar that I'm not in. It's not something you suddenly do in the middle of an otherwise low-key conversation. Mm. (laughs) That's my John impression because I agree with him. Yeah. Second, many show tunes are by nature big and dramatic, and I get uncomfortable about anything that is big and dramatic, like birth announcements. Don't make such a big (laughs) deal. We've all done it. (laughs) And funerals, same thing. Don't act like you're unique. Like a newborn baby. It just happens every day. (laughs) People should keep their heads down, not belt out show-stopping songs. Three, I think many show tunes are just not that interesting as compositions. When a song's purpose is, by necessity, to move along the plot, it might work really well in context, but it's less likely to rate as a standalone piece of music. And when a song's aesthetic, again, because it has to be, is big enough to reach the back row of the theater with its nuance and emotional heft, it has to be huge. And it becomes that much harder for the substance of the song to live up to the scope of its drama. Finally, many show tunes have a huge element of cheese. I know cheese is not a scientific term. A lot of show tunes just have something hokey and campy about them. For many people, that's part of the charm. For me, it's often kind of cringe. I know I'm painting with a really broad brush here about a beloved American art form. This is just my take. So this is the section where I talk about why I chose the album I did. And I've spent it making an airtight case for why I would never choose the Oklahoma soundtrack for an episode of Discord and Rhyme. But I did. And in a few minutes, when I talk about Rogers and Hammerstein and Oklahoma, I'll do my best to make a case for why I love it anyway. Enough to blabber about it with my friends for two hours. So like Ben, I have kind of a fraught history with live entertainment. Like I've seen dozens and dozens of concerts over the years, and I'm always excited about them when I buy the ticket. But at the actual show, I always feel like exhausted and trapped. And when I lived in the Bay Area, it almost became like a running gag that I would go to shows with producer Mike and just like leave in the middle of it for and make him go home by himself. I'm, I'm sorry, Mike. I'm just such an anxious person. <laughs> he's making this podcast with us. He's forgiven me. And with musicals, it's more a question of access. Like, I've never lived in New York like Ben has, and I've just never had friends or family who would drag me to touring productions of Broadway shows. The only ones I've seen, I think, are Singing in the Rain and Cabaret, and those were both really small productions. But... As for musicals as a concept, so my adult life has kind of been the story of how I learned to stop worrying and not necessarily love musicals, but I can (laughs) definitely appreciate them now. So in in college, I was a little snot. And anytime the subject of musicals came up, I was always just like champing at the bit to make fun of how they weren't like as gritty and real as the music that I liked. (laughs) But my girlfriend in my junior year loved musicals. And when I trotted out that tired argument, she shot right back that there's like just as much staginess and artifice to like David Bowie and rock music in general as there is to like guys and dolls. (laughs) And I, I remember it clearly. It was a really formative moment for me. And it made me realize 
realize like retroactively how many of the things I loved were in fact musicals all along, like all of the big Disney Renaissance movies, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, The Wizard of Oz, The Chipmunk Adventure. And since then, <laughs> I've watched a whole bunch of movie musicals with my wife, but it's all been playing catch up. Like, as far as Rodgers and Hammerstein goes, I didn't see The Sound of Music until about five years ago. I, I mean, I knew all of the songs just from living in the world, but I hadn't seen the movie. And I didn't see Oklahoma until Ben chose it for our show. But watching it and experiencing it has been kind of like getting a missing puzzle piece to so much of, of American culture. And I, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. So, John, tell me about you, Rodgers and Hammerstein, and musicals. So, Rodgers and Hammerstein is kind of foundational for me. You know, uh, what happens in a lot of the episodes that we do is during our personal histories, you know, we're talking about some famous rock or pop artist, and, you know, one of you will talk about how you've been listening to them since you were a kid or a teenager, or your, your parents used to play such and such artists around the house all the time, and very often... In, in my history, I'll say, yeah, I, I never heard them when I was a kid. I, you know, this stuff was never played around the house. And the question could be reasonably asked, well, was anything played around the house <laughs> when you were a kid? And the answer was Broadway musicals. Oh, okay. I, I, I mean, I, I heard a lot of, of musicals when I was a kid. I don't remember a lot of the specifics. The main things that I remember hearing, one, I heard, I heard a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber. But I also distinctly remember hearing the Keenan Eye a lot. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I am with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed suddenly I'm bright and breezy because of all. about you day by day. And it was it wasn't until much later um you know that I knew who had 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 done this but you know I really really enjoyed it and you know the kin and I is is still uh you know kind of a background favorite for me even though I don't think about it that much. And you know eventually I got older and I I started listening to rock music more and I, I wouldn't go out of my way to listen to musicals per se, but they weren't really a guilty pleasure either. Like they, they there was something I, I still really enjoyed. I would just never think about them. But I also realized over time that, you know, when people would talk about something in rock music as being Broadway-ish or being big about Baskin, they would usually use this as an insult. And as often as not, I would say like, well, that's kind of part of what I like about it. That's great. And and, and and over time, as I've gotten older, I've realized no, my love of of musicals is not you know something I'm going to treat as just ironic, or as just a secondary thing. It's something that I genuinely, absolutely love. I love going to to live uh, Broadway performances and and seeing musicals, whether in community whether in community theater performances or in larger settings. Um, and you know, I don't love all of them equally. There are definitely some that are are more favorites of mine than others. But you know, a lot of the big classics are are really really special to me. Now, with all of this, I don't actually remember hearing Oklahoma like in full b- 
before I started prepping for this. I'd heard some of the most famous material from it. Uh, but in listening to this, I've come around on the idea that, yeah, this is absolutely deserve, is deserving of its classic status. And I have a lot of thoughts uh, that I'm going to share on this. And I'm very happy that we get to talk about this. I really like both your thoughts on this. And you're going to hear way more. <laughs> so, Ben, why don't you tell us about Rogers, Hammerstein, and how they came to create the music you were so ambivalent about? <laughs> High on a hill was a lonely goat herd, lay, hood, lay, hood, lay, Loud was the voice of the lonely goat herd, lay, hood, lay, hood, Folks in a town that was quite remote herd, lay, hood, lay, hood, lay, Lusty and clear from the goat herd's throat herd, lay, hood, lay, hood, I'll be honest, for having written such a famous show, Rogers N. Hammerstein does not have much of a footprint on the internet. Uh, he's not even on Wikipedia. <laughs> okay, for real. Richard Rogers, born 1902, is one of the giants of American songcraft. He had what we could consider separate, full, and storied careers with two different lyricists. First with Lorenz Hart, so Rogers and Hart, and then with Oscar Hammerstein II. That's Rodgers and Hammerstein. Between them, he composed the music for 43 musicals, adding up to over 900 songs. And it's staggering how many of these songs, some composed for ephemeral, forgettable shows, some composed for what became massive culture-defining hits, jumped directly from his piano into the great American songbook. His melodies are inventive and unpredictable and catchy and durable. He is one of the all-time, all-time greats. It seems we stood and talked like this before. We looked at each other in the same way. But I can't remember. Rogers and Lorenz Hart were active as theater composers between 1920 and 1942. And when Hart started to become unreliable as a collaborator, Rogers began working with lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II, born in 1895. Hammerstein had already experienced massive success with the 1927 musical Showboat with music by Jerome Kern. In 1943, Rodgers and Hammerstein began collaborating on a musical adaptation of the 1931 play Green Grow the Lilacs, written by Lynn Riggs, because even 80 years ago, there was no new IP. <laughs> Green Grow the Lilacs was a show about early settlers in the territory that wasn't yet the state of Oklahoma. 
Rodgers and Hammerstein kept Riggs's story, but wrote a cycle of original songs with the goal of producing a crowd-pleasing Broadway musical. And man, did they. Opening in 1943, Oklahoma set a new standard for what a Broadway show could be, impressing audiences with its humor and music, but also with its handling of more mature themes. And that means that during showings after 10 p.m., the overalls came off. (coughs) It was an immediate success, and it ran for an amazing 2,212 performances just in its initial run. And there have been numerous productions since then that I think Rich is going to get more into. Yep. And the 1955 movie version was a hit and became iconic in its own right. Now, my crazy twist for the episode is I've never seen Oklahoma. I don't know what the plot is outside of what I've surmised from the songs. Honest to gosh, I don't know what the characters' names are, except that I looked them up on Wikipedia for this episode. (laughs) So just to not confuse people when I'm talking about the songs, I knew Judd because his name is in the title of one of them. But otherwise, I do have a fair guess about where the story is set. (laughs) The United States of America. Now... I've known for months that I'm going to be covering the soundtrack to Oklahoma, so I've had plenty of opportunity to watch the movie. But while the songs in Oklahoma can't be divorced from their context as tunes from a Broadway show with plot and characters, and while you could conclude that I'm missing the point here and elsewhere in life, I encountered this music as songs on an album, and that's the form where I came to love it. And so to go too deep here into the plot and characters that I don't even know about would be almost dishonest because I don't know them and I didn't need to know them in order to love the music. So I definitely look forward to watching Oklahoma after we tape this episode. But for now, I'm going to leave my perspective of these songs as pure as I can and focus on them as melodies, lyrics, rhythm, performances, because Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote some great, great songs for this production. My complaints about show tunes do apply to the songs from Oklahoma. There's cheese, there's fluff, there are lyrics that just move the plot along. But most of the songs are of such high quality, musically and lyrically, that I loved them the first time I heard them a few years ago. And this soundtrack has become one of my favorite collections of music. So I'm going to do my best to convince you that you should love them too. All right. Thank you, Ben. So before we sit alone and talk and watch a hawk making lazy circles in the (laughs) sky, it's time once again to say thank you to our Patreon subscribers who are the reason we're able to keep funding this podcast without ads. If you'd like to support us with a monthly donation, it ain't too early and it ain't too late to sign up at patreon.com slash discord pod, where donors can get access to our production notes, discord and rhyme stickers, and an extra episode every month. We also have a merch store at tpublic.com. Just search for Discord Pod and you'll be able to buy shirts, bags, hats, barley, carrots, potatoes, <laughs> surrey with a fringe on top, and lots of other things featuring our logo or one of the other designs we came up with. As for social media, you can find us on Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can email us any thoughts or feedback you have about the show at discordpod at gmail.com. All right, you guys. You guys ready for the show? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well... Oklahoma starts, like many Broadway shows, with an overture. Here we go. (laughs) 
I've never loved the idea of an overture, at least in Broadway shows. To me, including an overture is giving away the store at the very beginning of the show. Hey, (laughs) folks, here are all the melodic hooks. Here are the best parts of everything right at the beginning. This way, you're sure not to be surprised and delighted by them over the course of the show. We want to guarantee Mm -hmm. that every new idea you encounter from here on will be lesser in some way, that it will suffer in comparison, that it will underwhelm you. But if the show needs an overture, this is a sprightly one. It flies from theme to theme with energy and good cheer. It's peppy. I normally don't like peppy, but the overture is so irrepressible that I can't complain about it any more than I just did a second ago. Because I don't want everyone to be completely lost after that overture, I'm going to quote the plot summary of Oklahoma from Wikipedia here. Quote, set in farm country outside the town of Claremore, Indian Territory in 1906, Oklahoma tells the story of farm girl Lori Williams and her courtship by two rival suitors, cowboy Curly McLean and the sinister and frightening farmhand Judd Fry. A secondary romance concerns cowboy Will Parker and his flirtatious fiance, Adu Annie. And that's all I'm giving you. It's more than I ever had, you young whippersnappers. <laughs> <laughs> Having seen the musical, that sums it up pretty well. There are two love triangles. One is dark and one is lighter. And, you know, there's stuff that happens, but <laughs> you, you got the idea from that summary. <laughs> so, John, why don't you tell us your thoughts on this overture? So I think it's a, a very good overture because the music in Oklahoma as a whole is is very good. And, you know, this this picks from it well. I want to stand up for the concept of overture just generally because you can't hear Broadway musicals just as a genre unto themselves. It's part of a longer lineage. I mean, this yeah. is somewhat of an oversimplification, but, a, uh, you know, a, a way you can think of it is that, and this is somewhat of an oversimplification, but Broadway musicals descend from operetta, which in turn descend from opera. And overtures are an essential part of opera and operetta. And there's a couple reasons for this. So one is that overtures, you know, you you frame it as giving away the store. I would frame it as setting the expectations of the listener. Mm-hmm. They it, it gives them cues or what are the parts that are going to be the things where they're going to want to uh, perk up and really, really pay attention. What are the things, what are the parts that the composer really, really wants them uh, to be looking for? What are the things that are going to really, really matter? And, and another thing I want to you know point out is that overtures are part of a lineage that goes from well before the dawn of recorded music. For a lot of the people who would hear these in live performance, this might be the only time that they would ever hear this music. And so, you know, you say like, okay, well, they're they're hearing this, uh, you know, this great melody twice instead of once in its proper context. Well, that might be the only two times they ever hear it. And that you, and it's it's good for this, you know, if there's a particularly good idea for it to be driven home in a way that it will stick with them. Mm-hmm. So, just in in you know, in broad summary, like again, like I, I can see, you know, from you know, the perspective of 2024, where we might say, well, we know these songs. And, you know, maybe it's a little redundant at this point, especially, you know, if if you could just pick out the individual songs and maybe you might even be in the habit of skipping an overture if you're listening to it. But as part of the overall experience, I think there's a ritual aspect to this that you can't discount. 
That's really good. I guess if, if you have to bring knowledge and context into this discussion, <laughs> you did a good job. <laughs> well, and this is something that shows up in the world of rock music sometimes too. I'm thinking yeah. of like uh, "Speak Speak to Me" from uh, "Dark Side of the Moon" by Pink Floyd. Uh, "I Am the Sea" from Quadrophenia by The Who. Like, I mean, those are two like very self consciously art rock albums, but you still see things that resemble an overture in rock music sometimes. Mm-hmm. One other thing I wanted to to mention is that overtures are not just functional. You know, there's a lot of overtures to, to famous operas and operettas and things uh, similar to it that are performed as standalone concert works very frequently. Um, and I wanted to play an example of an especially famous one. Um, you know, there, there are lots of possible choices here, but I wanted to choose one from an especially uh, famous operetta uh, by Johann Strauss II called Die Fledermaus. Again, it's, it doesn't have a particular connection with Oklahoma, except that it's a really, really famous overture from the genre that's the immediate predecessor uh, to musical theater. So we're, as we say in the title, an album podcast, and I, Ben is covering Oklahoma like an album, and I respect that. But I, I just wanted to underscore something that John has already made pretty clear, which is that like uh, we're entering like a whole different paradigm of music here than we normally cover on this show. And the way I think of it, so when I was in elementary school, my dad had a copy of like the epic 1963 comedy, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yeah. That took up two VHS tapes because the movie <laughs> is more than three hours long. And it had both an overture and a non And I, I didn't know what the hell either of those things were, but it, it just, when I watched it, it really felt like I was like, experiencing art from a different world, even though it was just like a comedy from the 60s. So do I love the Oklahoma Overture like as a standalone piece of music? Not really, but I love that it's there because I love being reminded of all like the different forms music can take. I like that. So I see how an overture can do more than this overture is doing. I just think this kind of goes, this is sort of like a greatest hits. Well, to go back to the who, what do you think of an underture? I don't, I love Tommy. I think Tommy is their best album and I don't like the overture, whatever chur they have at the beginning. It's just not my favorite part of it. Yeah, that was a joke. Underture is like the really long one that's super boring. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's move on to one of the actual songs on, uh, on the Oklahoma soundtrack. So track two, if you want to call it track two is, (laughs) Oh, what a beautiful morning. Got a beautiful 
What a sublime song. It's beautiful, uplifting, life-affirming. The melody is so perfect that it feels elemental, like it's always been around. This is hyperbole, but sometimes a song deserves hyperbole. The beauty of Richard Rodgers' melody might distract from how perfectly chosen Oscar Hammerstein's lyrics are, but I want to focus on those for a minute. I'll come back to these themes throughout the episode, but I want to point out how evocative they are and how taut they are. Quote, all the cattle are standing like statues. They don't turn their heads as they see me ride by, but a little brown maverick is winking her eye. And all the sounds of the earth are like music. The breeze is so busy it don't miss a tree. An old weeping willer is laughing at me. And I feel like William Shatner here. (laughs) These lyrics are not the product of sudden inspiration. They're the result of writing and rewriting and re-rewriting and substituting a new syllable where the existing syllable didn't have the exact effect he wanted it to. I'm very often suspicious of lyricists, especially those who work with brilliant composers. Very often, a beautiful melody can carry its cruddy lyrics across the finish line, Weekend at Bernie's style, making you think that the lyrics are cool party dudes when they're actually decomposing and attracting flies just under their Hawaiian shirt. I'm thinking of George Gershwin doing his best to make his brother Ira's words sound less inane, and Elton John's gorgeous melodies making Bernie Toppin's words sound like they're actually saying something worthwhile. But in contrast, Hammerstein holds his own here. He's an equal partner. John Raitt's performance of this song is what sold me on this 1964 version of Oklahoma, because to me, this is what Oh What a Beautiful Morning is supposed to sound like. His vocal is creamy and robust, and yet still nuanced. He accentuates each word and emphasizes the punchlines, but never misses the emotional heft of the song. John Raitt, that's Bonnie Raitt's dad, by the way, is the reason I chose this recording of Oklahoma rather than the more well-known and still awesome movie soundtrack. If you took away the rest of Oklahoma, which you definitely shouldn't, this song would still last forever. So a part of my own personal history that I left out, and actually the reason I signed up for this episode, I have a pretty deeply personal connection to this song. So Mm. when I was really little, like talking about like three or four years old, my mom would drive me to preschool or my aunt's house for babysitting. And we would sing this song together in the car ride every morning. Wow. And some of the notes we hit were different. And I remember that we would <laughs> sing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I heard this version and I was like, what? That's the wrong note. <laughs> and I remember that we would sing the sun is as high as an elephant's eye instead of the corn is as high. And I still maintain that that's a better lyric. But I, I didn't even know the song was from Oklahoma until like very, very recently. And my mom is no longer with us. And this is one of the warmest memories I have of her. And I, I just hope my own son feels the same way about all of the They Might Be Giant songs I'm already forcing upon him at 10 months old. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, I have more on this song, but I, I'm going to hand it over to John. What do you think of this one? Oh, you know, I always, you know, thought of this as in the background as a song that, you know, I liked that I thought was quite nice. And then as we were 
drilling on this, or as I was drilling on this album in preparation and reading up on it and, and thinking about it, I came to the conclusion that this song is on the short list of the greatest pieces of American music of the 20th century. Yeah. It's up there. And I have a lot of reasons for this. Um, Oklahoma as, 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 a whole, as a whole thing, you know, it, it, it's not really a, a story kind of musical. I mean, there's a story in there, but that's not really what it's about. It's about painting an idealized vision of America. And this would have been really poignant at the time when this musical originally premiered in 1943, which was in the middle of the Second World War, and there was no end in sight. And so you had these two composers created, creating an idealized version of America at a time when the rest of the world was ripping itself apart and America had gotten involved in this. You know, it, you if you read, if you go back and like read about, you know, the performances of this in its original run, because initially people didn't think that this was going to be a big hit. And then what happened was that people would come to see Oklahoma and there were reports of people just, when this song was done, people just weeping in the aisles. Because this, uh, you know, tapped into something that, people needed. It was one of the most intense emotional experiences of the time. And it's incredibly beautiful to me from that angle in terms of just, again, creating a picture of an America that in a certain sense never existed. And this vision, you know, has some, some problems. There's, you know, anybody who isn't white, Hmm. you know, kind of just gets, uh, you know, shoved off to the side, but that's, but that's, part of how nostalgia works. It creates an idealized, you know, kind of sepia tone version of the past that may not have existed, but works in creating a feeling that resonates with you. And that's really what this song does, perhaps more than anything else in this entire musical. And then I also want to mention is that, you know, this need to tap into an idealized version of America was by no means limited to this musical. This was part of a a broader phenomena that was happening in art and in particular, particular in American art at the time. And there are a lot of examples of this, but uh, the one I really, really wanted to zero in on uh, as probably the most famous example of this is the contemporary works of the composer, Aaron Copland. So Aaron Copland uh, was a composer who had, who did a lot of different types of music in his life. And if you go beyond, you know, the, the most famous works of his, you know, you could find that some of it is surprisingly gnarly. I like a lot of it, but there's a lot of, of stuff below the surface in terms of his most popular stuff that I think a lot of people would not enjoy. But the, the late thirties and the, into the, into the forties was a, a period for him, you know, known as his populist period. And this was the period that produced some of his most famous works. And they were largely, again, about this idea of uh, depicting an idealized version of American music and of America just as a concept. America establishing itself as something distinct uh, from the rest of the world. I wanted to play uh, three clips of pretty famous uh, compositions uh, from this period that illustrate this. Uh, So the first of these is Fanfare for the Common Man, which is an excerpt uh, from his third symphony, um, but ultimately became very famous as a standalone work. 
I mostly know this song because the theme to Star Trek Deep Space Nine is a shameless homage to it. Ah, yes. <laughs> So that was from 1942. A uh, second example I wanted to mention is from Aaron Copeland's 1944 ballet, Appalachian Spring, uh, which culminates in a musical setting of an old shaker hymn called Simple Gifts. Copland, like the Stallone movie. <laughs> no, it's Copland. So you've seen Copland, but not Oklahoma? Yes. <laughs> Oklahoma doesn't have Sly. And the third example I want to mention is from the ballet Rodeo from 1942. The most famous piece of music from there is Hoedown, which later became known as the Beef It's What's For Dinner theme. So putting a bow on this, again, you know, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning is an amazing piece of music as a standalone entity. But when you put it in a broader context, it becomes kind of overwhelming to me. And I think more than anything else in this musical, it's what makes this musical an essential piece of American art. Yeah, I have read like this song described as like single-handedly changing the landscape of all of American musical theater in just one moment. Yeah. And I, and I can definitely hear it. But uh, I only have one more thing about this song. So for this episode, since Ben is playing the role of skeptic of musicals and John is guy who knows about music from before 1940, I <laughs> took it upon myself to listen to some other productions of Oklahoma. Because I think to get the complete picture of how musicals work, you need to kind of examine them as a sort of a living document that changes depending on the production and, by extension, the surrounding culture. And the, the clip I picked specifically for Oh, What a Beautiful Morning comes from a 1999 production in London starring Hugh Jackman as Curly just before he broke through as Wolverine in the X-Men movies. <laughs> There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. He is the, the best there is at what he does. As elephant's eye. And it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. So most productions of this song that I've heard are like the 1964 version we heard earlier, where the melody kind of like descends on the stage like it's blowing in with the wind but in this version jackman just like 
belts out the song at full volume, perfectly enunciated from the first second. And I think he does a great job, but like the effect to me sounds kind of corny. Like it feels very American Idol to me, going for going for yeah. bigness instead of like exploring the nuances of the music. Hmm. And it, that about sums up the 1999 production to me. And a, a, as we'll hear, there are some versions of Oklahoma that deviate from the original in interesting ways, but others are just as happy to like lean on decades worth of musical theater cliches and in my mind this is one of them so that was quite a lot of discussion on that amazing song but let's move on to another one this is called the surrey with the fringe on top when i take ya tonight with me honey here's the way it's gonna be you will set behind a team of snow white horses in the slickest gig you ever see Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry When I take you out in the Surrey When I take you out in the Surrey With the fringe on top Watch that fringe and see how it flutters When I drive them high-stepping strutters Nosy pokes will peek through their shutters And their eyes will pop the wheels are yellow, the upholstery's brown, the dashboard's genuine leather. With eyes and glass curtains, you can roll them down in case there's a change in the weather. Two bright side lights. This is the rare show tune that is seemingly tied to its source material and setting, because there aren't too many standalone pop songs about surreys or horse carriages, but that's also become a much loved standard. Well, it's that damn good. The melody is playful and also absolutely lovely. John Raitt's phrasing is magnificent, and his and Florence Henderson's chemistry is infectious here. Hammerstein's lyrics are a series of one- and two-syllable words slotted in to perfectly match the rhythm of Rogers' melody. His word choices are inspired. And I'm going to Shatner here again for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, watch that fringe and see how it flutters when I drive them high-stepping strutters and two bright side lights winking and blinking. And then another verse, the wind will whistle as we rattle along. The cows will moo in the clover. The river will ripple out a whispered song and whisper it over and over. And then finally, hush, you bird, my baby's a-sleepin'. Maybe got a dream worth a-keepin'. Every word serves a purpose. Every word is evocative. Now, this song does point towards something about Rodgers and Hammerstein's songs that I've recently begun to notice and now can't unhear. The melodies are absolutely beautiful, but the rhythms are almost always staccato and punchy, almost distractingly so. When I take you out tonight with me, chicks and ducks and geese better scurry. Doe a deer, a female deer. (laughs) Shall we dance? Shall we dance? Shall we dance? That's their deal. And the songs are great. And this emphasis on syllabic bursts allows Hammerstein to put in just the right word and make easy substitutions if one syllable or word doesn't work. But I find myself wishing they could loosen up a bit rhythmically. It can make it sound like all the songs are sung in German, even when they're clearly sung in English. I picture Rogers standing there during a rehearsal, rapping his ruler menacingly while the frightened singer tries to match those raps. As it is, (laughs) I wish the singer had more room to stretch out or speed up or slow down. 
All that said, Surrey with the Fringe on Top is a gorgeous, dreamy song. I love the way it slows down as we reach the end, as the characters gradually get drowsier. The composers make sure the tempo and the words match. It's a fun ride that eventually comes to a sleepy, well-deserved stop. Surrey with the Fringe on Top was eventually sung by Frank Sinatra and played by Miles Davis. Not bad for a song about a horse carriage, but absolutely deserved. this for a long time and i did not know it was from oklahoma i didn't know anything about it so john talk to me about surrey with the fringe on top i mean it's a silly kind of cornball song but i really like it it's it's so lovely and so aware of what it is um that i can't hold anything against it um but what i really want to talk about with this is actually is a gateway to something that that ben alluded to about one of the one of the important things or the really, really impactful things about uh, show tunes in a world outside of, of just Broadway. Um, show tunes were massively important for jazz for a very long time, you know, f- from the 40s onward. They, you know, they, they would serve as, uh, as the foundational pieces for, um, for a lot of really, really notable covers. I mean, you know, and one of my favorite pieces of music ever is John Coltrane's adaptation of My Favorite Things. Yeah. And again, like it, it, it starts with a, a relatively simple, well-known tune, but you know, the the well-knownness of it in in many cases can can make it so that it gives you more of a foundation to do a lot of interesting things with it. And so that that Miles Davis cover of, of Surrey with the Fringe on Top is is a good example. Another thing I wanted to to mention is how important Broadway and, and show tunes were in the early days of prog rock. Um, no, and, and I'm absolutely serious about yeah, this. No. Like, at, so just to give a couple of examples, um, one of the, the most famous uh, tracks by The Nice, which we covered in uh, our, our series on Mike's prog rock compilation a couple of years ago, uh, was a cover that they did of America from West Side Story. And that's, you know, that's one of the, the most important foundational tracks in the world of prog rock. A little more obscure, but from a famous band, and also taken from West Side Story, is that uh, the first ever released Yes composition was a cover of Something's Coming from West Side Story. Like that, and, you know, Yes would would work in uh, bits of, uh, again, of, of the West Side Story version of America into their cover of Simon Garfunkel's America. But another... Uh, somewhat more obscure place where the where this popped up where this particular track popped up was in Moonchild by King Crimson from their debut album in the Court of the Crimson King so uh for those of you who have not listened to that episode 
just a refresher. Moonchild is uh, four minutes of song followed by eight minutes of drifting and trying to, to find music. But in the middle of trying to find music, at one point, they begin playing a snippet of Surrey with the Fringe on top, which we will clip here. There it is. <laughs> cool. I will now be able to remember 20 seconds of the Moonchild Jam. <laughs> yes. But yeah, but the thing I wanted to know is like, you know, a lot of people who are into to prog rock and more complicated, serious music will, will thumb their nose at Broadway and show tunes. And that just strikes me as so misguided. Like, the people who made the music that you love, like, loved this stuff. Like, it's worth spending some time in this area. Well, that's why I chose this album, so we could get to Prague. There you go. So I don't have a ton to say about this song as a song, except that it's basically like the 1906 version of We Always Take My Car because it's never been beat. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to use it as an excuse to take us back to 1943 and the version of this song that appears on the original cast recording of Oklahoma. When I take you out tonight with me, honey, here's the way it's going to be. You will sit behind a team of snow-white horses in the slickest gig you ever see. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry when I take you out in the Surrey. When I take you out in the Surrey with a fringe on top. So this one doesn't deviate from the one that we heard. I mostly wanted to clip it because I, I don't know if you both knew this, but Oklahoma was the first original Broadway cast recording. Well, and it, I think it, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's basically a studio recording. Like they, they brought the theater orchestra and cast into the studio and recorded the songs as they would have appeared on stage or as they would have been heard on stage. And the rest is musical history. Like performers had used musicals as a source for covers in the past, like Frank Sinatra and whatnot. But Oklahoma like popularized the Broadway musical as we know it today. And a big part of that is that like anyone in America could just put on a record and hear all of the songs performed by the original cast <laughs> in their living room. It was a revolution. Also, in addition to the clips from other productions, I'm going to be playing a few scattered clips from other places in pop culture where these songs show up just to illustrate like the sheer cultural reach of this musical. And Surrey with the Fringe on Top shows up in the classic 1989 romantic comedy When Harry Met Sally, where Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan duet the song on a karaoke machine at the Sharper Image. This is from Oklahoma. Here's the lyrics right here. Surrey with the Fringe on Top. Yes, perfect. Ooh. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry when I take you out in my surrey. When I take you out in my surrey with the fringe on top. Now you watch that fringe and see how it flutters when I drive them high stepping shutters. Nosy folks will peek through the shutters. They're supposed to sound not good, right? Yeah, of course. I think that's okay. Important, yeah. Also, man, the sharper image. Talk about things Oklahoma has outlasted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love the sharper image. I never bought a single thing there, but it was fun to look around. Yeah, that, that's the universal sharper image experience. You go there and just play with the things and don't buy anything. That's why there's no sharper image anymore. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go on to the next song. This is called Kansas City. Everything's up to date in Kansas City. 
They gone about as fur as they can go They went and built a skyscraper seven stories high About as high as a building ought to go Everything's like a dream in Kansas City It's better than a magic lantern show You can turn a radiator on whenever you want some heat With every kind of comfort, every house is all complete You can walk to privies in the rain and never wet your feet Kansas City is unapologetically goofy. It's not a classic. There was no chance that Frank Sinatra was going to croon Kansas City for Bobby Soxers with fluttering eyelids, or that Miles Davis was going to sensitively blow muted trumpet over its chord changes. Asa Barbarian's delivery here is cornball, almost distractingly so. But it's fun. The song features cowman Will reporting back to his friends about his trip to the nearest metropolis, Kansas City, Missouri. He enthralls them with tales of how everything is modern and exciting. For example, they went and built a skyscraper seven stories high, about as high as a building ought to grow. Another example of Kansas Cityans living in the world of the Jetsons is you can turn the radiator on whenever you want some heat. Wow. It's all written with a wink from 1943, look what these yokels thought was impressive and modern, and sung with a wink from 1964, and even that was 60 years ago. It's an easy joke to tell, but because Hammerstein's phrasing is almost mathematically precise, the punchlines land. They also devote half the song to Will telling his friends about a burlesque show that he went to. Because Rogers and Hammerstein's worldview was that boys will be boys and girls should be locked in their bedrooms until they're married. One of the gals was fat and pink and pretty, as round above as she was round below. I could swear that she was padded from her shoulder to her heel. But later in the second act, when she begun to peel, she proved that everything she had was absolutely real. She went about as far as she could go. Yes, sir! If every track on the album was Kansas City, I can't say I would love the album or choose it for a Discord and Rhyme episode. Just like if every American city was Kansas City, we'd be a second-rate country (laughs) at best, something like the Belgium of North America. And that's how you alienate your listeners. Yep. I actually haven't been to Kansas City or Belgium. I'm sure they're decent. I've been to Belgium. It's cool. I believe you. (laughs) But as a grout track, a plot track, just a hoot, the song Kansas City is fluffy and cute and funny. So Will sings this like right after stepping off the train from Kansas City, like literally at the depot, which makes this an example of a whole subgenre of musical number that I've seen described as town celebrates arrival of train. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And some examples include put on your Sunday clothes from Hello Dolly on the Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe from the Harvey Girls. And of course, Monorail. Along the same lines, I'll add a Wells Fargo wagon from The Music Man. Not a train, but they're waiting for something. There are so many. It's it's a very like convenient way to signal the advent of modernity, including in the case of The Simpsons. And 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 I know that that whole bit comes from the Music Man, but you know musicals are an ecosystem. Hmm. Uh, so the clip I pulled from this song 
So the clip I pulled for this song from another production comes from the 1979 Broadway revival performed by Harry Grainer. I got to Kansas City on a Friday. By Saturday I learned a thing or two. Cause up to then I didn't have an idea of what the modern world was coming to. I counted 20 gas buggies going by themselves almost every time I took a walk. Then I put my ear to a bell telephone and a strange woman started in to talk. Do you? What next? Yeah, what? I really like his gee whiz energy. It's good for the character. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with the name Harry Grainer, well, first he played the villainous mayor of Sunnydale in the third season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <clears throat> and Ben, this one is just for you. He also played Clint, Ted Mosby's hippie stepfather on How I Met Your Mother. Oh, okay. Okay. And Mahatma Gandhi and the pancakes. <laughs> Everyone and the dragon. Excellent. Oh, love that bit. Anyway, the 1979 revival is very highly regarded among Broadway types. So check it out if you liked that clip. You can find most of the versions of Oklahoma pretty easily on Spotify. But, John, what do you think of Kansas City? It's fine. I don't have that much to say about it. It's it's goofy fun. It moves the, the album along. You know, like Ben said, like an entire uh, production of this wouldn't be worth talking about. But as... Uh, you know, as an as an interlude after some you know fairly major numbers, it's it's a lot of fun, and I and I enjoy it every time it comes on. All right, well, that's it for Kansas City. So let's move on to the next musical number in this production. This is I can't say no. I know I mustn't fall into the pit, but when I'm with a feller, I forget. I'm just a girl who can't say no I'm in a terrible fix I always say come on let's go Just when I ought to say nix When a person tries to kiss a girl I know she ought to give his face a smack But as soon as someone kisses me I somehow sort of want to kiss him back it's obvious that this song is dated and even problematic, that Rodgers and Hammerstein are doing something that one could not and should not do today. The way they spell can't in the title. I understand <laughs> grammatical standards were different in the 1940s, but these days you have to spell words correctly. It's can't. Damn straight. <laughs> Aside from the grammar, the sexual and gender politics of I can't say no are dated and downright inappropriate. Honestly, I feel strange even discussing the politics because as a guy, I have not had to deal with my sexual appetites being made light of. I've never been slut shamed. And that is what at least I hear Rogers and Hammerstein doing here, although it's in an allegedly funny way. It's easy to tell that they would not write a similar song about a man who enjoys sleeping around because in their world, that's normal and healthy. Even if Adu Annie is a fictional character, the way they shame her here is icky, and I won't equivocate about that. The best I can say is that this was 1943, and the discovery that women are people too wouldn't win the Brobel Prize for Science until 1990. It's a decent melody and typically clever lyrics deployed for a purpose that isn't at all admirable. 
The song is a showcase for the performer's personality, and Phyllis Newman sings it with verve and good humor. But that's the best I can say about it. Well, Ben, get ready because you're about to get slut shamed. Oh, <laughs> Ben, you ignorant slut. This song is great. <laughs> this is a classic jump on the table and strike up the piano at a New York bar type song. And I love it. It's been stuck in my head all week. And honestly, awesome. I, I don't think it's gender politics are necessarily that outdated. Like people in the past were a lot hornier than you think. It's just been sanitized <laughs> in our minds because of like you know, like high level censorship, like the Hayes production code in Hollywood. Uh, but, but this is a case where like the intentions of the song honestly like change pretty significantly depending on the performers. So accordingly, I have a couple of clips to play. So the first comes from Gloria Graham from the 1955 film version. So Gloria Graham was not just not a trained singer. She was actually tone deaf and her performance of the song actually had to be spliced together word for word from multiple takes. So part of the reason she sounds uncomfortable about her terrible fix is just a side effect of her own limitations as a performer. It ain't so much a question of not knowing what to do. I knowed what's right and wrong since I've been ten. I heard a lot of stories and I reckon they are true about how girls are put upon by men. Maybe this version is the reason I think what I think about the song because she just comes off as dumb and it sounds like she's being belittled Mm -hmm. here and doesn't really understand what she's doing. And just to be clear, I think Gloria Graham was a great actress. This just wasn't her finest moment. Yeah. Uh, but now let's jump forward to the 21st century. <laughs> so Broadway legend Kristen Chenoweth performed this song as part of a 60th anniversary celebration for the movie. And she throws in like all sorts of asides and vocal tics and stuff that make it clear that she loves to bang and she is proud of it. <laughs> I know I mustn't fall into the pit, but when I'm with a feller, <laughs> I forget. <laughs> <laughs> So without changing the text entirely by way of her own decisions as a performer, Chenoweth makes the song completely sex positive. And I'll I'll put a link to this performance in the show notes because she's a very charismatic visual performer. And it's clear that she's just like having the time of her life singing this song she loves. And she actually originally came from Oklahoma. So I imagine this is a very personal musical to her. But yeah, the defense rests on I can't say no. (laughs) John, what do you think of it? Yeah, I lean more towards you, Rich. Um, I I do think that there is something to, uh, you know, Ben's puritanical. Well, well, Ben's concerns about the intent uh, for Rodgers and Hammerstein. One thing I I would say as a possible defense there is if, if you frame it through like what would have been the societal view of things, you know, in 1906, let alone, uh, like, put aside the night when they're writing this in 1943, you know, in, in the mid-19-aughts, and what, sh- quote-unquote, should uh, a young girl be thinking about things? Like, that would be perhaps a reflection of, you know, one would say, like, what should she be thinking, you know, based on the way people would look at things? 
But even with that, I do like the idea of you know just saying let let's let what can this what can be done with this with adapting it to to, to later mores. I, I think that making this more sex positive and 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 the eagerness that people have in in bringing it in that direction, you know, suggests that there is at least the potential for something more to be here than you know maybe the worst case scenario with things. So all this is to say, I like it. I I can again, like there is a part of me that you know maybe gets a, a smidge uncomfortable, but then I try to like find the better angles to to listen to, and then I enjoy the hell out of it. I like that, and I understand that my take on it might not be everyone's take on it. I don't think you're wrong, but I think that I don't think there's a single definitive one to have here. Yeah, definitely. I mean that, that that's part of the reason I brought all of these like extra clips and stuff because it's it's fascinating seeing like how like some songs that like aren't necessarily my favorites in the original version get transformed either like, you know, just by the context surrounding it or just by the charisma of the, of the performer into great songs. And I think that the Kristen Chenoweth uh, performance is an example of that. Yeah. So I, you make a good point that like the, the performer can transcend the intentions of the composers and sometimes yes. they need to, and that's good. Okay. Well, that was a good discussion. Let's go on to the next song. This is called many a new day. There's nothing structurally innovative about Many a New Day. It's just a sophisticated and beautiful song. It begins with an extended verse, not the type of verse we normally talk about, which alternates with choruses and bridges and pop songs, but a loping, melodic, half-spoken introduction to a lot of show tunes that often lay out what the song's going to be about. Why should a woman who is healthy and strong blubber like a baby cause her man's gone away a weeping and a wail and how he's done her wrong that's one thing you'll never hear me say never- The song then bursts into a refrain that has a twisting and unpredictable melody which floats in a key that most singers couldn't hit with such accuracy. As is typical of Richard Rodgers, the melody is harmonically free but rhythmically rigid. There's an emphasis on practically every syllable, that ruler rapping there. Many a New Day is sung warmly and gracefully, as are all the songs on this soundtrack that are sung by Florence Henderson. She is a lovely lady. I think we'd all agree about that. And I love her in the Amish Paradise video. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I forgot. This is a song that isn't tied to Oklahoma. It works as part of the soundtrack, but it also stands on its own as a potential standard. I think that more than on Kansas City or I Can't Say No, Rodgers and Hammerstein were shooting here for immortality. I won't be around to say whether the song achieves immortality, but I do think it deserves to. John, do you think this deserves immortality? (laughs) I do. You know, I, I see your point, Ben, about, you know, the, 
the song being kind of rigid because there is kind of a, a a bouncy, almost like typewriter like feel to the yeah. to the melody and parts, which I don't think is bad. I think it gives it a certain crispness. But then at the end, there's a part where they they relax that a little bit, and you get to just luxuriate in the sound of her voice. Mm-hmm. And that always just like finally drives this home, um, you know, takes it from a song that I really like into one that I kind of love. <laughs> like it's, it's it's like having like a really, really crisp, uh, you know, guitar rock song that out of nowhere has like a really rousing, you know, 10 second guitar solo at the end when you don't expect it to just launch it into the stratosphere. And I think this ends up being really, really good. So the way Laurie sings the title, or Florence Henderson, always gets Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer stuck in my head. Oh, oh yes. Oh, wow, yeah. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. And that made me think, well, that's understandable because that song is ancient, a tale as old as time. <laughs> nope. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer <laughs> is from 1949, six years after Oklahoma premiered. Wow. Yep. All of those boomer Christmas classics are just much more recent than you think they are. (laughs) And for the sake of completeness, I'm going to mention a song that's left out of both the version Ben's talking about and the film soundtrack. Uh, So at this point in the full show, there's a song called It's a Scandal, It's a Outrage, sung by Will Parker's romantic rival, traveling salesman Ali Hakim. Friend, what's on your mind? Why do you walk around and around? With your hands folded behind and your chin scraped in the ground. Twenty minutes ago, I am free like a breeze, free like a bird in the woodland wild, free like a gypsy. And I mostly bring it up because the uh, outrage reminds me of Captain Beefheart's Neon Meat Dream of a Octafish. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> neon Meat Dream of a Octafish. That comparison having been made, let's move on to what may be the most famous song on this collection. I don't know. It's debatable. This is People Will Say We're In Love. All night with me Till the stars fade They'll see it's all right with me. People Will Say We're In Love has had a long life outside of Oklahoma. There's a list on Wikipedia of artists who have covered the song in either vocal or instrumental versions. It comes to 89 artists, just counting artists who have their own Wikipedia pages. That's not counting the worthless nobodies who aren't on Wikipedia. (laughs) I love the lyrical conceit here. Curly and Lori are winkingly urging each other not to make any romantic gestures in front of anyone else because then, ew, people will say they're in love. But the winking subtext of the lyric 
driven home completely by the romantic tone of the music is that they are in love. It's simultaneously corny and brilliant. The list of romantic gestures that they're allegedly not supposed to make to one another is, ironically, a pretty good to-do list for anyone contemplating a romantic relationship. Laughing at the other person's jokes, pleasing the other person's folks, sighing and gazing at the other person, taking their arm, praising their charms, and my favorite, baking their favorite pie. Rogers' melody is achingly lovely and romantic. It's instantly timeless. And during the chorus, the way that the male and female voices, John Raitt and Florence Henderson, blend together creates a a weightless ambiguity in the melody. It makes me think of a, a discussion we had about, I think it was Babies in Black from the Beatles for Sale album, how Lennon's and McCartney's voices were far enough apart singing the melody that they almost created a new note kind of in between them that that neither of Mm -hmm. them is actually singing. I might just be describing a chord. I don't know. So despite the sly joke of the song's structure, people will say we're in love stays resonant because the description of love, which is evoked in the lyrics and the melody is just so spot on and heartfelt. So John, what do you think of this song? Oh, it's really good. You know, there, there, there's a whole subgenre in in musicals of of songs where the characters uh, aren't quite able to, you know, fully confess their love for each other. So that instead, they they sing about how great the concept of love is, or the act of being in love with somebody is. There's there, there's a whole bunch of them, but one that I really really wanted to mention here as one that I I really enjoyed is from the from the musical Brigadoon. And the, the, the song I want to clip here is Almost Like Being in Love, which doesn't cover exactly the same lyrical ground, but I think it's in the same general orbit. What a day this has been. What a rare mood I'm in. Why, it's almost like being in love. There's a smile on my face for the whole human race. Why, it's almost like being in love all the music of life seems to be like a bell that is ringing for me and from the way that i feel when that bell starts to peal i could swear i was falling i would swear i was falling it's almost like being in love so yeah i really like again people will say we're in love but part of it again is part of is that i really have a soft spot for this general genre and and yeah i'm really really glad that a song of this type is here yeah, it's funny. I couldn't tell you whether I'd heard this song before watching the movie, but I could, I could just tell it was famous. Like this song sounds famous. M- maybe that's <laughs> just like the glow of like the Tin Pan Alley songwriting style to me. Like that's just how it comes to it comes off to my ears. But th- these lyrics are so clever. The way Curly mm-hmm. and Lori aren't like willing to admit their own feelings for each other, so they they just like outsource it to the rest of the town. Like I couldn't have come up with that. Yes. Yeah, me neither. It's it's, it's great. It's, yeah, I, I just really appreciate songwriting like this. Like I said earlier, it's a completely different paradigm from the music we've covered on the rest of this podcast. Like, Radiohead would never write this. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, Ben, it's time for the next song. I'm just warning you, there's some misspelling that's going to occur again. <laughs> totally inappropriate. 
This is poor Judd is dead. Are you from Oklahoma, Rich? <laughs> poor Judd is dead. Poor Judd Fry is dead. He's looking oh so peaceful and serene. And serene. He's all laid out to rest with his hands across his chest. Oh, so weird. His fingernails have never been so clean. Then a preacher'd get up and he'd say, Folks, we are gathered here to moan and groan over our brother Judd Fry, who hung himself up by a rope in a smokehouse. Then it'd be weeping and wailing from some of them women. Then he'd say, Judd was the most misunderstood man in the territory. People used to think he was a mean, ugly fellow, and they called him a dirty skunk and an ornery pig stealer. But the folks that really know him know that beneath them two dirty shirts he always wore, there beat a heart as big as all outdoors. As big as all outdoors. Judd Fry loved his fellow man. He loved his fellow man. He loved the birds of the forest and the beasts of the field. He loved the mice and the vermin in the barn. And he treated the rats like equals, which was right. Weird song. Yeah, I guess so. This is a song where more than most songs on the album, the plot of the show is important to the meaning of the song. And I don't know the plot, so I'll muddle through using context clues. Curly sings the song to Judd, and Judd joins in a bit. And Curly's intent is to dissuade Judd from taking his own life, I believe, by painting a picture of Judd's funeral. He wants to get Judd to realize how many people would miss him if he wasn't there. I'd say it's like the plot of It's a Wonderful Life, but I haven't seen that either. Truthfully, I'm not sure what purpose I serve in this episode. This song is hilarious. Maybe it's strange, like Rich says, but it's hilarious. In singing Judd's imaginary eulogy, Curly purports to be playing up Judd's virtues, but in reality, he's throwing jab after jab at the man, some of which Judd catches and some of which flies over his head. Quote, people used to think he was a mean, ugly feller, and they called him a dirty skunk and an ornery pig stealer. And then Judd says, wait a second, where are you going with this? And so Curly quickly pivots to, well, all those people were totally wrong about you, of course. Rogers' melody is a wonderful backdrop for the words. It's a little dirgy, but that befits an imaginary funeral, and it's stately and inventive. I'm going to go off on a, a tangent here. Singing a funny song is challenging. For one thing, very simply, most people who think they're funny just aren't that funny, and thus neither are the songs that they sing. Second, and more paradoxically, the funnier a song's lyrics are, the more it can cheapen the musical experience. Funny songs can feel less timeless, even when the lyrics aren't tied to an era or a cultural reference, and they often are. If a song is too goofy or sticky, even if people think it's funny, genuinely, they aren't going to get as emotionally attached to it. Take Weird Al, and I know I'm in dangerous waters here. Eh, Uh, It's okay. (laughs) I think his lyrics are brilliantly funny, but I think his music and delivery are just also a lot. It's hard to get like attached to his music because it's just so goofy. Yeah, Weird Al is very extra. That's part of his brand. (laughs) Yeah. And finally, it's tough to write funny music because the same repeated listens that can make a song catchier to your ears and, and to drive in its emotional resonance can also make its jokes seem old and obvious and predictable before their time. Even the best jokes can wear out their welcome after a few listens. 
All of this is to stress what an accomplishment it is that Rodgers and Hammerstein thread that needle here. They wrote a funny song that has staying power. The jokes land and stick because they're subtle and even ambiguous. When Curly sings, he loved the mice and the vermin in the barns, and he treated the rats like equals, which was right. Yeah. Judd isn't entirely sure what Curly sang about him, and it takes us a second, too, before we catch the joke. The jokes stick because Hammerstein structures them with surgical precision and because John Raitt does such a credible job delivering them. Well, Ben, for the most part, I've been honoring your conceit of interpreting the plot without foreknowledge of the musical, but uh, I'll just let you know there is no comfort in this song. This is 100% biting sarcasm. Like, Curly's not trying to stop Judd from killing himself. He's trying to goad him into killing himself by pointing out what a pathetic piece of vermin he is. Wow. But isn't there there some conceit that he's, like, not doing that? Like, is there any – is he at all pretending not to – uh, like kind by of. saying so a few nice things about him. So Curly is kind of a dick and oh. I'm going to get to that in just a second. <laughs> so this is a pretty good opportunity to bring up the 2019 Broadway revival of Oklahoma, which is a pretty drastic reimagining of the production without changing any of the text. So in all the prior versions of the musical, it goes without saying that you side with Curly because, you know, he's our hero and the courageous symbol of manifest destiny, a concept that we all accept without any self-reflection whatsoever. (laughs) But but in the reimagining, it's pretty clear that Curly is a chode and Judd is also a chode, but a, also a flawed but ultimately tragic figure. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got a clip of the 2019 version of Poor Judd is Dead, sung by Damon Duano. Folks, we are gathered here to moan and groan over our brother Judd Fry, who hung himself up by a rope in the smokehouse. And then weeping and wailing from some of them women, he said... Judd was the most misunderstood man in the territory, and people used to think he's a mean, ugly feller, and they called him a dirty skunk and an ornery pig stealer. But the folks that really know him know that beneath them two dirty shirts he always wore their a heart as big as all outdoors As big as all outdoors Judd Fry loved his fellow man He loved his fellow he, he sounds much more like sneering and insincere to me in this newer version than yeah. in the one that we played earlier. So I, I haven't seen this version of Oklahoma, so I, I can't go through all of the ways it messes with the source material. But uh, from all reports that I've read, it's like very much a version of the musical that you would expect in like 2019 America, where all of like the patriotism of the original production isn't just taken as a given. It sounds it sounds really interesting, actually. Like the audience is arranged around just like a series of like tables and chairs in the middle. The lights never go off. And during the intermission, uh, the the audience was served chili and cornbread. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's just a lot of like weird, like incidental details. It's also apparently really gory. I like the context you're providing here with with how the different productions interpret the show differently. Yeah, this one made some headlines. Like it's very much like what you would imagine from like a Trump era version of Oklahoma. (laughs) So, John, what do you think of this one? I mean, it's very goofy, and it's it's not one of my absolute favorites, but I enjoy it every single time. Um, I want to just shed some shed a light on near the very end of the song because I, I love the the final curly verse. He's looking oh so pretty and mm-hmm. so nice. 
He looks like he's asleep. It's a shame that he won't keep, but it's summer and we're running out of ice. And, you know, the joke there is that they got to get him in the ground because his body's starting to stink because it, because it's hot outside. And that's what bodies start to do uh, in, in an Oklahoma summer. <laughs> and j- just the idea that, you know, he's trying to do all this nice stuff, but now he's just pointing like, well, now you're a rotting corpse. Yeah. And it, it's so macabre that I really yeah. enjoy it. I also have to, I also have to mention that that final uh, line, but it's summer and we're running out of ice, uh, was taken and made the title of the first episode of the wonderful 2019 HBO series Watchmen. Ah, yes. And the 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 title actually, in a in a way, ends up giving away uh, some plot points because there is a significant character uh, in that uh, show in the, in the first episode named Judd who dies mm. near the very end of the episode. And at that point, it becomes obvious why uh, you know they, they would pick that. And also the, the musical Oklahoma plays a, a not insignificant part in that episode as well. So I thought it was I thought it was fun when I realized uh, as, as we as I was watching that and realized, oh, that's why they picked that yeah. line. Yeah, it's a very, very, very smart show. Yeah, the, the Watchmen miniseries is great, and also it must be said that it, it's set in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, and it, and and there's sure all is. sorts of like references to the musical, like peppered throughout the season. I like that you highlighted that last line uh, because that's that is a joke that should be funny the first time and obvious every time after that, and yet to me, it's always funny. It always gets me, and I think I it's love gross. that you. Hi- I, I I think it's right that you highlighted. Because it's not delivered in a sticky way. It's delivered with like ambiguity. Um, and, yeah. and macabre was a good word yep. for it. So I think that's why it doesn't stop being funny because it's a little darker. When I watched the movie, I did not see this song coming. Like I, I, after the songs that came before this, like I did, all of a sudden I'm like, wait, what is this song where this guy is describing his brother's rotting corpse? <laughs> I was not <laughs> expecting this in my like 50s Broadway musical or, you know, 40s, but movie from the 50s. It is nuts. It is like, I don't know, the, the song coming out of nowhere is like, you know, when like the thin end of the wedge comes out of nowhere on Exotic yes. Birds and Fruit by Procol Harum. And that's for you, John. That's a great reference. <laughs> Thank you. Picture, picture, story, picture. On that note, let's go on to the next song. This one is also about poor Judd. It's called Lonely Room. But when there's a moon in my window And it slants down a beam across my bed Then the shadow of a tree starts a-dancing on the wall And a dream starts a-dancing in my head And all the things that I wish for Turn out like I want them to be and I'm better in that smart Alec Cowhand Who thinks he is better than me And the girl that I want Ain't afraid of my arms and her- This could be an anthem for incels everywhere. Yes. Judd Fry is in his titular lonely room, seething and percolating, filled with rage and bitterness towards everyone and everything, especially his rival Curly, and especially, especially Lori, who should love him and be with him because, well, because he wants her to be. It's not clear what he would offer her in this proposed arrangement. 
or what she would gain from it. That part rarely occurs to incels. Hot girls should just want to be with them because. It's hard to feel (laughs) bad for Judd. Self-pity is not an attractive emotion, and his logic here does not add up. But at the same time, it's not hard to relate to Judd. We've all felt self-pity, as unattractive as it might have been. We've all felt rejected. We've all spent time holed up in our metaphorical lonely rooms. Lonely Room is a good song, not great. The melody is dark, minor key, almost claustrophobic. Hammerstein's lyrics are typically effective, a series of monosyllabic words, each one chosen almost scientifically. Era Barbarian sings it with some affectation, but also a lot of emotion. He gives the song a bit more gravitas than it deserves. This one does nothing for me. <laughs> and, and I've really I've really tried to like like it as, you know, just kind of a dark, sad, melancholy place in it. And I don't know, something I like the description of the melody as claustrophobic. Like something about it just refuses to stick with me in any way. It ends up just kind of being this weird black hole for me in the in the middle of the experience. Like again, I don't think I dislike it per se, but I just it just makes me feel nothing. And I and I can't really say that about anything else in the in this whole soundtrack. This is another song that was actually left out of the 1955 movie version. It might be that Judd was played by Rod Steiger, who's a great actor, but not much of a singer. I'm not sure. But a movie it was not left out of was the 2020 Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, where it's performed by actor Jesse Plemons, a.k.a. Todd from Breaking Bad. And all the things that I wish for turn out like I want them to be. I'm better than that smart Alec Cowhand Who thinks he's better than me And the girl that I want Ain't afraid of my arms Was he in Get Out as well? No. Now I'm probably stretching really far there. Okay, never mind. He's in all sorts of stuff now, though. He's like one of the more unlikely prestige actors. He was in like The Power of the Dog. He was kill- He was in Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that yet. So I haven't seen that movie, but I watched a clip of the performance, and Jesse Plemons is wearing old age makeup and performing the song in front of a crowd consisting of every person from his life. Hmm. So in case you thought Charlie Kaufman was in any danger of crawling out of his own ass, never fear. (laughs) All right, next song. This is called Out of My Dreams. This is a garden variety, very pretty song. It's not an all-time jazz guys will be playing variations on the melody forever classic, 
It's just a lovely song played in waltz time. Richard Rogers writes the melody in a key that seems almost impossible to sing in a way that would sound natural. But thankfully, our heroine, Carol Brady, sings it wondrously. <laughs> Her tone is rich and warm, and she navigates the high wire of Rogers' melody effortlessly. There's a double-time bridge in the middle of the song where a chorus of female singers urges Lori to make up her mind about who she loves. This is a short song that's more complex than it would seem on the surface, but more than anything, it's sweet and melodic and affecting. It moves the soundtrack along in a very enjoyable way. John, you like it? Yeah, I do. It's one that I feel you know gets by much more on performance than on anything especially notable in the melody. Um, but that's fine. Like, you know, it's it's a great performance. It's very warm. It's very lovely. And I think it's I think it's a great palate cleanser after a track that I didn't really like. So in most productions of Oklahoma, uh, the song leads into the dream ballet, which is a fairly common tradition in musical theater. And, and if you're not familiar with this concept, it's like a moment in a musical where like the dialogue stops and the themes and sometimes the plot continue through a dance sequence. And some famous examples of this are the Broadway melody sequence from the finale of Singing in the Rain and the lavish set pieces that show up in basically every classic musical choreograph by Busby Berkeley. And I, I personally love me a good dream ballet because because they <laughs> they evoke a time when people didn't like expect gritty realism from entertainment like they wanted to see extravagant spectacles that they couldn't see in their boring lives though John you have a more mixed feeling about dream ballets is my understanding yeah I, I mean I, I I've had to just kind of come to accept them the the analogy I would give is that I I accept dream ballets in in the best musicals in the same way that I accept Omgen and Pikino and Tago Mago <laughs> I can. Yeah, I mean, they are very excessive. You have, to, you have to really buy what they're selling. Anyway, so to loop back to Oklahoma, the 2019 revival got a lot of press for its dream ballet because it is f***ing nuts. <laughs> and I can't tell you what it looks like visually because it hasn't been made publicly available. But this is how it opens. That's Weldeer and Neil Young. <laughs> Well, I think I, I think the uh, the cultural touch point they're going for is the Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner. That too. Yeah. And the ending basically sounds like Broadway King Crimson. Yes. This has got John headbanging, just like I planned. What album do I have to choose next time to not go down this road? Like, <laughs> Do I have to choose the Wiggles or something? This is literally from a production of Oklahoma. <laughs> there is no six degrees of separation being played here. <laughs> anyway, I bet you weren't expecting two King Crimson references in our Oklahoma episode. So nope. you're welcome, Ben. <laughs> I like that context, though, that, that, that you provide. All right. So we've gotten through our dream ballet. Let's go on to another more traditional song. This is The Farmer and the Cowman. The Farmer 
is a good and thrifty citizen. He's thrifty, all right. No matter what the cowman says or thinks, you seldom see him drinking in a bar room. Unless somebody else is buying drinks. But the farmer and the cowman should be friends. Oh, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. The cowman ropes a cow with ease The farmer steals her butter and cheese But that's no reason why they can't be friends Territory folks should stick together Territory folks should all be fast Cowboys dance with the farmer's daughters Farmers dance with the rancher's cows The Farmer and the Cowman is a song that could only exist as part of Oklahoma It was never destined for an outside life. No one's going to sing this for the judges on American Singer or whatever the hell it's called. But in the context for which it was designed, a musical about turn-of-the-century Oklahoma, it's a surrey load of fun. (laughs) It's a ditty about the two warring factions at that time in Oklahoma, apparently farmers and cowmen. Now, it's rumored that there were also Native Americans living in Oklahoma at the time with some minuscule claim on the land that the farmers and cowmen Mm -hmm. were arguing over. Maybe they had a verse, too, that just was cut right before showtime. The lyrics here are goofy, but in a way that's impressively structurally tight. We hear a few verses in favor of the farmer, interrupted by jibes about them from the cowmen. We hear a few verses in favor of the cowman, interrupted by jibes about them from the farmers. The words are perfectly chosen down to the syllable, and the points are made so symmetrically that I'm reminded of Joni Mitchell's classic Both Sides Now, and that's high praise. Mm. And the jokes are chiseled with such care and detail that, to me, they hold up 80 years later. In between the verses, Rodgers and Hammerstein throw in a swirling, ecstatic chorus, preaching that territory folks should stick together, A prescient message with an indelible melody snuck in amongst all the wackiness. And somewhere off to the side of this message of love and unity between farmers and cowmen, a Native American is giving a slow clap. (coughs) Bravo. Truly heartwarming. Killers of the Flower Moon now in theaters. (laughs) (laughs) The Farmer and the Cowman is superficially a novelty song, but they're a staggering craft just below that silly surface. Yeah, this is the song that sounds the most like what I pictured in my head before I actually listened to this musical, <laughs> uh, which is less a criticism. And uh, the song is great and more a reflection of like how much Rodgers and Hammerstein influenced the musical form in general. Like they came up with this. <laughs> and uh, the only other thing I have is that um, for people filling out your Discord and Rhyme bingo cards, this one was referenced on The Simpsons Ooh. in the episode The Millhouse of Sand and Fog from 2005. Our reverse parent trap just made everything worse. Maybe we should use a different movie as our guide. Like Oklahoma! Oh, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. Oh, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. One man likes to push a plow. The other likes to chase a cow. But that's no reason why they can't be friends. Yeah, that was basically a family guy joke. 2005 is yeah. like well into the no man's land of Simpsons for me. <laughs> so, John, what do you think? I am fascinated by this Ooh. one, and I, and I really like it. But the, I think that there's there's something lingering under the surface of this, and I, and I noticed it. You know, the last couple times that I listened to this track, uh, with one of the verses that's tucked near the end. 
It's when Curley sings, and when this territory is a state and joins the union just like all the others, the farmer and cowman and the merchant must all behave themselves and act like brothers. And the thing that I think is is simmering below the surface with this is this idea of we all need to, you know, not fight each other basically because we have to stand up to everyone who's around us. Because I, I get the sense in listening to this of of the people in this territory having kind of an inferiority complex. Mm. And what I mean is Oklahoma joined the union as a state way later than the other states that basically surrounded it all on all sides. Like, you know, with the exception of like the very, very west end of the panhandle that touched New Mexico, which came in later, the rest of it was surrounded by, you know, states like Texas and and other states, you know, that had been in the union for a long time, but Oklahoma was like this, you know, this dumping ground of, you know, people who, you know, they decided like, oh, we don't really want them to be part of the union. Kind of like, I don't know, like how like New Jersey people would feel in in the shadow of New York or something. <laughs> but and and the sense like we all have to like be together because, you know, we're we're the underdogs in in not just in this region, but in this country. And it's something that I just find really, really fascinating is, you know, with this being a musical about Oklahoma, it's kind of, you know, not just about just this specific area, but it's a musical about underdogs, Mm. about people who are just like trying to like find their place in a world that maybe doesn't really care if they make it or not. And I, 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 I feel like this song, like for being such a silly, goofy, almost novelty number, has kind of this lingering sense of poignancy just under the surface that I find really interesting. That was great, John. That's the, good. Yeah. Zooming out for some historical context. Okay, well, let's move on to the penultimate track in this musical. This is called All or Nothing. And I'm sorry, Ben, that or is spelled E-R. <laughs> You have to be a little more standoffish When fellers offer you a buggy ride I'll give an imitation of a crawfish And dig myself a hole where I can hide I heard how you was kicking up some capers When I was off in Kansas City, Mo I heard some things you couldn't print in paper Some fellers who've been talking like they know Foot, I only did the kind of things I order, sort of To you I was as faithful as can be for me Them stories about the way I lost my bloomers Rumors, a lot of tempest in a pot of tea The whole thing don't sound very good to me In All or Nothing, Will lectures Adu Annie about how things will have to be if they're going to settle down and be a couple he makes clear to her that he's going to remain stodgy and predictable through the course of their marriage. Quote, I'm a one-woman man, home-loving type, all complete with slippers and pipe. And he makes clear how she'll have to be, monogamous and homebound. He doesn't explicitly say that in order to win him, she'll need to become a suppressed, depressed shell of her former self, but it's f- sort of implied. And let's not forget, if they have a child, quote, He'd better look a lot like me. Yeah. I don't know how any woman could resist this sales pitch. It's almost guaranteed that Annie will be a despairing alcoholic by their first anniversary. But she accepts this eminently refusable offer, and I wish her a lot of luck. There's some reason for optimism. Towards the end of the song, she gives Will license to live the life that he wants to live, even if he wants to go out. 
with a catch. Quote, have your fun, go out on the town, stay up late and don't come home till three and go right off to sleep if you're sleepy. There's no use waiting up for me. This is a goofy song. The melody is mid-grade and it's all made a little less timeless by Jack Elliott's cornpone affectations. But the pace and lyrics and performance go a long way towards redeeming it. The song is a zippy back and forth between Will and Adu Annie with a string of Oscar Hammerstein's usual rewarding punchlines. And the singers are game for it, especially the irrepressible Phyllis Newman. You know, in in the rest of this this episode, you know, I've, I've had a tendency to, you know, want to dig beneath the surface to try and find more there. And this is one where I feel like I have to take the exact opposite approach. Like, as long as I stick just at the really, really bouncy, happy surface, I am very happy <laughs> with this. Because if I dig even one inch down, it becomes a pit of despair. <laughs> but, you know, that surface is a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's a very, very... You know, very, very chipper number. And again, you know, just don't think about it too hard and and you'll be very happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I really got nothing about this song. So I'm going to share <laughs> one piece of trivia a piece about Rogers and Hammerstein. So Richard Rogers is one of two people to not just earn an EGOT, meaning Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, but a PGOT, adding a Pulitzer to that pile. Wow. The only oh, other person yeah. to achieve this distinction is composer Marvin Hamlish. And uh, Oscar Hammerstein is the only Oscar winner named Oscar. Wow. <laughs> I like this. I like what you're bringing. At least until Oscar Isaac wins one. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, it's time for the grand finale. This is the title song, Oklahoma, or as you probably know it. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. Every time right after this, my brain goes to U-N-C-L-E, f*** you, Uncle f*** <laughs> from South, the South Park movie. Right. So this is how you end a show or an album or anything, a podcast episode if we had any guts. By the finale, everybody's in love, not just our romantic heroes with each other, and their log cabins are no doubt a-rockin', but all the settlers are in love with their new territory. They're all optimistic about their lives in what's soon to become a state. Spoiler alert. Once again, there's not a wasted syllable. Florence Henderson sings, Every night my honey lamb and I sit alone and talk and watch a hawk making lazy circles in the sky. There's no fat in that. A point is made, images are evoked, and on to the next line. Richard Rogers outdoes himself here with the melody. Even with that usual staccato, martial syllables rat-tat-tatting along, the music is rousing, anthemic, life-affirming. It's an easy bet that audiences walked out of the theater singing, Oklahoma and I yippee yo yaye That's the intent of the finale, and they absolutely accomplish it. But they don't stop there. As a finale to the finale, the cast joins together for a slow, 
hopeful reprise of Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, making clear that they're not just singing about a few sunny hours before lunchtime, but about whatever excitement is in store for all of them in this place that they love. to go remember that song we wrote that song so john what do you think of this uh, inescapable piece of american pop culture <laughs> oh it's fantastic i love that the culmination of this musical which again is is sort of about something but sort of about you know just create a picture but the culmination is that they're a state now it gives you know you know Tapping back into what I said about how you know there's this this underdog thing with them being a territory as now like the United States has has now said like you know we consider you equal with the rest of us and that's what what they've been seeking for for this entire time. But yeah, it, the the song is so chipper. It there's no way that anyone um, you know coming out of a performance of this is not going to feel happy and uplifted. And with that final, uh, you know, reprise of "Oh, what a beautiful morning!" You know, that's a great capper as well. You know, that's that's a thing where you're going to come out out of both of these and go like, "Wow, there's some great tunes in here," and you know, maybe make you want to spend your money on listening to it again. But yeah, fantastic. Yeah, Ben didn't clip the intro to the song, so I'm going to play that part from the movie version because I love it. They couldn't pick a better time to start in life. It ain't too early and it ain't too late. Starting as a farmer with a brand new wife. Soon be living in a brand new state. Brand new state, gonna treat you great. Like, I, I, I love the way that it peaks with brand new state before rising even higher toward yep. the chorus. Like, John, is there a term for that kind of song construction where there's like a bit that kind of sets the table for the rest of the song? Or should I just call that the intro? Let's just call that the intro. <laughs> the intro, yeah. Come up with a new word there. Uh, <laughs> I, I also like how this is an upbeat song with a really like well-deployed dramatic pause. Like It's the kind of thing you can't rip yes. off without it sounding like Oklahoma. They did it here, and that's, this is the only song that can do it. I love it. Yeah. But yeah, this is a song I knew like kind of as a cultural meme well before I actually heard any version from from any stage production. Like the, there's the uh, It shows up in the Watchmen miniseries, as, we, as John mentioned earlier. Uh, it showed up on Tiny Toon Adventure. Adventures. Oh, yeah. As Ben mentioned, it was in the South Park movie. And most recently, I saw it referenced in the finale of the Bob Newhart show, sung by Suzanne Plachette. Wow, you realize this may be the last time we all have dinner together? Oh, the where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. I'll get the beans. <laughs> Maybe it is time she got out of the big city. Oh, that's a little trick Emily's using. Whenever she feels like crying, she's going to sing Oklahoma. Oh, sure. And by the way, that other voice you heard at the beginning was Marsha Wallace, a.k.a. Mrs. Kerbapple from The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who was a cast member on the Bob Newhart show. So listeners can just keep filling out those bingo cards. I thought her name was Crandall. 
<laughs> make an idiot of yourself all right ben you've done it you can finally watch the oklahoma movie now <laughs> so what are your closing thoughts on oklahoma and the rogers and hammerstein in general i think where musicals are concerned i'm in the position of a casual fan who enjoys what they hear on the radio and what they hear in their daily directive from spotify specifying what music they will enjoy now that means that i like the good stuff even love it, but I don't care that much about the form itself. When there's a big hit song, most casual music fans, they dig it a lot. They even buy it. They love it. And sometimes they even convince themselves that they're big fans of the artist. But it's usually obvious that the love will fade when the artist stops producing big, catchy songs. No one cared who Cisco was or Eiffel 65 or the Baja Men. We just pretended we did for a while because they had a catchy song. That's where I am with Oklahoma and musicals. I don't care much about the genre it represents. Some of it I outright just tolerate. But when a musical is really good, when it's the equivalent of a killer summer banger like Party in the USA or Blank Space, I do absolutely love it. And it affects me. And I'm excited to tell a few dozen podcast listeners about it. (laughs) A counterexample to this casual fandom for me would be an album like Beach Boys Party, in which my favorite band dicks around with an acoustic guitar and half-heartedly sings a bunch of cover songs. And I love it because I love the whole place that they're coming from, even when it objectively sucks. So counter counter example, I'm not going to ride or die for Rodgers and Hammerstein. I'm not going to buy advance tickets to their next big musical, whatever it ends up being. But what I love, I love. And I love the Oklahoma soundtrack. I haven't seen the show. I don't know the plot. I hadn't even heard of the state before we started doing this episode. (laughs) But I still love the soundtrack. It's a big, playful, silly, engaging, melodic, and lyrically sharp chunk of music. Some moments are corny and some might even be problematic. But the best moments are rousing and downright transcendent. Rodgers and Hammerstein knocked this particular musical out of the park. So I'm a wary fan of musicals and a tentative but growing fan of Rodgers and Hammerstein, but I'm an unapologetic fan of Oklahoma. John, how about you? So as I've I've said repeatedly in this episode, you know, I I go further in my love for musicals than Ben does. There's a there's a sense I get from a lot of serious music listeners that you know, you're, you're supposed to consider, you know, musicals as something that people enjoy if they don't know better. They've just been brainwashed by, you know, the liberal elites <laughs> or whatever. And, no, and, and I I just can't get there. And the, the older I get, the more convinced I am that, you know, Broadway musicals absolutely rank at, among the greatest American contributions to music of the 20th century. It's up there with rock with blues, with jazz, with hip-hop, any other major uh, genre of American music, I feel that Broadway musicals as a whole belong there. And Rodgers and Hammerstein were among the best workers in that area, and Oklahoma is among the best things that Rodgers and Hammerstein ever did. Again, like, you know, not everything here is perfect, and, you know, you're going to you know, want to stumble from adaptation to adaptation to try and find what's best, um, but you know, that's part of the fun. And again, I'm, I'm really, really glad that Ben picked this because it's funny, you know, 
as much as I love musicals, I never would have picked something like this for an episode. So I'm glad that we had an opportunity to do this because you know this is a great piece of music that absolutely deserves you know the time that we gave it. Well said, John. Yeah, we've covered huge bands on Discord and Rhyme, like the Beatles, and huge albums like Hysteria by Def Leppard. <laughs> but I think Oklahoma might be one of the biggest things we've covered on this show, yeah. just in yes. terms of like its impact on the form and, and the sheer number of references that have been made to this musical throughout the last 80 years of pop culture. And I, I love that because we really cover a lot of ground on this show as it is. But like talking about a cultural institution like this really puts it all in context and makes music feel like bigger and more all-encompassing than I ever could have imagined. So yeah, thanks for picking this, Ben. You're welcome. And I'll just, I just want to add to that, uh, you know, at the beginning of the episode, we threw in the teaser and it's a scene from a, a TV show that I have so much affection for and that John loves to a uh, band of brothers. I love it too. Oh, okay. I've only I'll, seen it once, but I really liked it. Awesome. And I admit when, when I saw this scene originally, like 20 years ago, uh, where Luz starts singing the theme the, the closing theme from Oklahoma, I did not know what that was. I, I just, oh, that's a catchy song. Just the fact that it's in this, you know, and it's set like a year after Oklahoma came out and already all of them knew this song, even though they hadn't even been in the United yep. States for months. Uh, that, that's It's making a point about how culturally resonant this show was. So Ben, what do you have to recommend to people who like Oklahoma and want to dip into this strange new genre called musical theater? <laughs> If you like Oklahoma and are cool with Broadway shows and show tunes in general, that's excellent because Oklahoma kicked off 80 years and counting of upbeat, broadly comic musicals. And beginning in the 50s and 60s, most of the big ones featured well-produced soundtrack albums recorded by the original cast. The bigger shows like Oklahoma have experienced new runs on Broadway with new casts and new cast albums and there have been standalone recordings like this one from 1964 that we're talking about today, which aren't associated with a Broadway production, but which are just a celebration of the music. And Rich did a great job during this episode going through the different productions and just how they all had a different spin and interpretation on the show. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. If, like me, you are wary of the Broadway aesthetic the chipper, singy, dancey, jokey, so far over the top, you can't even see the top when you look down vibe of a lot of the shows. Or if me, you're way more about the songs than the costumes and the dancing and the uncomfortable seats, then I have some directions you can go in. Uh, I was a little tentative in my closing thoughts, but you can't go wrong with, with most Rodgers and Hammerstein, at least their most famous shows. Carousel, South Pacific, The King and I, these are monster musicals filled with songs that are both beloved in the context of their shows and as standards that have been recorded by dozens of singers. In particular, their 1959 show, The Sound of Music, is a tour de force of memorable songs that stick in your head when you're a kid and never let go of you. Never heard of it. <laughs> I've also been hugely impressed by the work of Alan Lerner and Frederick Lowe, especially their 1956 masterpiece, My Fair Lady, which is filled with songs that are both richly melodic and lyrically sharp. I have often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. All at once I'm 
high Knowing I'm on the street where you live Their 1960s show Camelot is also really fun. My all-time favorite musical, though, and one I could have easily chosen for this episode, is the 1957 show The Music Man, written and composed by Meredith Wilson. Uh, When I was in middle school, I saw a ramshackle but fun production at my temple, and it hooked me. The songs are catchy and clever and so durable. And because I've seen the show, not on Broadway, just at Temple Zion on Miller Road in Miami, and I've seen the movie, I even know the plot to The Music Man. (laughs) The overall conceit, a shyster salesman cons a small turn-of-the-century Iowa town into forming a kid's marching band. Sounds weird just as I'm saying it, but it's such a hoot. The show hooked me as a kid, and I still love it, even if I, for now, see it as more the exception than the rule where Broadway shows are concerned. So I don't have a very deep knowledge of musical theater, but I imagine that a lot of our listeners are people like me and Ben who have only like dabbled in it. So I think it's fine to recommend some of the more obvious choices. So, so I'll just say you yeah. should see West Side Story, either the 1960 film yes. or the more recent one directed by Steven Spielberg. They're both great in their own ways. You should see Singing in the Rain. Hmm. If you think you're too cool for Singing in the Rain, no, you're not. Singing in the Rain is too cool for you. <laughs> it is so good. Yep. And to continue the Gene Kelly thread, my one kind of left field pick is the 1967 Jacques Demy film, The Young Girls of Rochefort, starring real life sisters Catherine Deneuve and Francois Dorliac. If you watch these movies, you will be well on your way to loving musicals. And John, what do you got to recommend? Well, Ben and Rich, you grabbed a lot of my musical recommendations. Oops. <laughs> um, no, that's fine. I, I love The Music Man. I love The Keen and I. Um, you know, Sound of Music is wonderful. Uh, my Fair Lady is, is fantastic. I, I would recommend, the first thing I would recommend is, you know, there are a lot of great Disney movies that are also just great musicals yeah. in their own right. You know, we did we did a bonus episode a, a couple years ago on on Disney songs. Um, you know, there's a lot of great classic ones. You know, Mary Poppins again. You know, it, it may seem like a cliche, but that is a freaking great yes. musical, even when you strip away the visuals on it. Though her words 
words are simple and few. Listen, listen, she's calling to you. Feed the birds, tuppence a bag, tuppence, tuppence, tuppence a bag. But going away from the direction of musicals, um, I'm going to call back to something I, I mentioned earlier in the episode. If you want music that, again, taps into the general uh, vision of idealize America, again, I want to recommend very highly the works of Aaron Copeland. I think that, uh, again, like the, the the various populist works that he did, you know, there's, there's some that I didn't mention as well, like Billy the Kid, and there, there's a handful of others aside from the ones that we clipped already, but, you know, if if you haven't if you think you haven't heard a bunch of these things, you probably have. But it's not just like the individual you know snippets that you might hear in movies or in commercials. Like those are really really great works that again really really evoke a sense of an America that it maybe never was, but it's really really great to imagine that it could have been. So yeah, Aaron Copeland is a I think is a great listen for for somebody who enjoys Oklahoma. Well, guys, I have to say that our long-awaited Oklahoma episode was okay. <laughs> eh? Eh? Get it? Yes. All right, next episode. Phil is going to be talking about the album Demons and Wizards by Uriah Heep, which, as far as we know, has never been adapted into a Broadway musical. <laughs> but there's still time. Yes. Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy the Oklahoma soundtrack and other musicals by Rogers and Hammerstein at your local record store, or just look around online and you're bound to find some version of it for cheap. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at discordpod on Instagram for news and updates. Visit John's music review archive at johnmcferrinmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal. Editing and production is by me, Rich Bunnell, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for the theme song, and also special thanks to my wife for enduring many different versions of Oklahoma in our household over the course of the last couple of weeks. Thanks, Jen. See you next album, 
and keep as cool as you can.